You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Back when Team Whitfield lived over on 7th Street, uh, I used to have to drive past Providence Hospital every day on my way to work. And as I was driving past Providence Hospital, there was a group of people that stuck out to me. It was the people wearing the white coats. Now, I'm sure you know that the people wearing those white coats were doctors. We could tell their vocation by what they were wearing. In fact, there was an article that came out in the Washington Post a few years ago that made the case that clothing for doctors is more than just a matter of personal style. It's an emblem of their specialty. It's an emblem of their training. It's an emblem of their culture. That white coat indicates that that person is driven by an oath, the Hippocratic Oath. And this oath reminds them that their vocation, their calling, is not just dealing with fevers and fractures and cancers. Their calling is to deal with real people. And God's vision for his church is that we would be a people that stands out, not because of our gifts or talents, not because of how many letters we have behind our name, not because of how many numbers we have in our bank accounts, but because of the virtues that we are wearing, the moral and ethical virtues that we are wearing. God's vision for his church is that we would live lives of such moral and ethical beauty and such faithfulness that our neighbors would find Jesus Christ to be more beautiful and more believable because of what they witness in us and among us. These virtues are supposed to be an emblem of our training in the grace of God. They are supposed to be an emblem of our kingdom culture. These virtues are to reveal that we're a people driven by an oath, God's covenant promise that reminds us that our calling is not just about church attendance and showing up at Bible study and community events and ministry initiatives. No, our entire calling is about dealing with people, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our covenant community in the church, and our neighbors. This is our calling as God's people. And this morning, we are bringing our series on living in light of the resurrection to a close. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and wrap this up with a key text that shows you the difference that the resurrection should make in the lives of God's people. This has been the whole point of this series. We don't want to just believe abstract theological ideas or or make these doctrinal commitments Just because, you know, that's the the minimum that you have to believe to be in the club. No, we actually believe that these doctrines, these theological ideas can transform our lives if we perceive them. If we understand what's happening. And the resurrection, the fact that Jesus died, he really died. And he truly rose from the dead. It's the stubborn fact of history that the resurrection actually transforms our lives. It actually gives us new motivations, new energy, new vision to participate in what God's doing in the world. So 
we're going to get after this in this text for this morning. And I love this text. Here's why. I love this text because it's dense. It's rich. It's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And it's shallow enough for a toddler to wade in. Because it uses this helpful imagery, this helpful metaphor of putting off and putting on. And you did that this morning. You took off your pajamas and you put on your church clothes. Church clothes. Well, in a similar way, if you don't get anything else through the rest of this sermon, kids, you listening? What, what this text is teaching us is because of what Jesus has done for us. It's now time for us, those of us who know his love, to take off the old, ugly way of living. Like you take off your clothes that are dirty. And to put on the new way of living, like a pair of new clothes on the beginning of your school year. Does that make sense? That's the imagery for today. This is what we're getting after. And we're going to hit this through two points. There are two points for this morning. We're going to look at our uniform and our unity. All right, so let's take a look at our first point, our uniform. Now, this book, Colossians, has this amazing development if you're following this book through. Remember, if you're trying to understand how to read the Bible, instead of just dropping into isolated little verses, which we tend to make them mean whatever we want them to mean at the time, understanding how uh, passages fit into the broader argument and, and thematic development is the way that we really get command of what it's teaching. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, comes out of the gate in the beginning of this book with a bold proclamation of the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus Christ. He wants you to have a very high view of how great Jesus is. And he tells the Colossians, this is how he breaks it down. He tells the Colossians, this group of people that live in Colossae, he tells them that the goal of his ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ. He then combats some type of popular false teaching by telling the Colossians of their freedom in Christ. He tells them that God has triumphed over their enemies in Christ. They have died with Christ and have now been raised with Christ. In fact, their lives are hidden with Christ, and they will one day appear in glory with Christ. So what we see is that the whole essence of the Christian life is union and communion with Christ. And what that means is something very similar to what it means to be married. When two people join their lives together, it, it's a blending together of two lives. That's what union with Christ is. We are brought into his life, his fullness. He swallows up the evil and the ugly of our lives in his goodness. And in union with him, we now have a new way of seeing the world and living in the world. This is what he's teaching. The entire ground of the Christian life, the essence, the heart, the pinnacle is union with Christ. The apostle is driving this rich theology down to the street level because this is what shapes the kind of revolutionary community that overturns status quo evils, status quo dysfunctions in human life, and status quo deceptions in this world. All the lies that are being peddled in this world through marketing, advertising, relationships. Everyone's trying to sell you a version of the good life. And if you do that, oh, you know what? If you get a Mazda, you're going to be happy. Oh, you know what? If you eat our brand of potato chip. You didn't know potato chips could change your life like that, did you? But these are the things. We're being sold 
these visions of the good life. If you do this, you know, the, 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 the American dream is a vision of the good life. But what Paul wants us to see is that true life is found not in those, those deceptions. He wants to replace these with goodness, truth, and beauty. God's redemptive work in the world climaxed in the resurrection of Jesus. But God's work continues as the resurrection works into the lives of God's people. You see that? That's what's happening here. In the beginning of chapter 3, Paul essentially says to the community, you are the Easter people. You're the resurrection community. You have been raised with Christ. Now you must change clothes, as it were. Verses 8 through 9, he says, you must take off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another because you have put off the old self with its practices. When you become a participant in the resurrection life of Jesus through faith, faith alone, when you have been united with him, you come under the dictates of a new kingdom dress code. You see what he's doing? He's just talking about vices and virtues as different clothing that you put off or put on. Look at verse 12 through 14. Paul gives us the new dress code. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together and perfect harmony. Now, could you imagine showing up for a tour of the White House in your pajamas? Could you imagine that? No, no, that doesn't even register with you. Like you would be in your best, right? Could you imagine if you were appointed to, to be a presidential aide? And, and could you imagine showing up in some torn up jeans and a, and a stained t-shirt every day for work? I mean, you could, but how could you, right? Like, this is essentially what Paul is saying. Because you have been united to Jesus, it's sort of unthinkable to continue wearing those old vices. It's time to put on something new. It would be the impossible possibility to continue in that way. Paul is getting at something similar. Our union with Christ should matter because we're now, we're now given the opportunity for change and transformation. Now, I want you to think for a moment what it would be like to, to be a part of a community like this. Imagine how amazing it would be. It would be so life-giving, so encouraging, so joyful. It would be transformative. It would be a countercultural community that resulted in the building up of the church and compelling corporate witness to the world. And not only would it be countercultural, it would be cross-cultural. Look at verse 11. I find it very interesting. Look at what's happening. Paul builds a, a rhetorical sandwich here. He names, the, he names the, the vices, the old vices, and he names the new virtues. And in between is this bold statement about the nature of God's cross-cultural community. In other words, the only way we can live into that picture 
is if we put off the old vices and put on the new virtues. This is significant. Paul says in verse 11, he says, here. It may not be true out in the local schools. It may not be true in local business practice. It may not be true in the local institutions of our place. But here, in God's community, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. You see, he's, he's identifying all of the dividing lines that keep people separate from one another. The, the ways in which we take up these, these identities that keep us estranged from one another. And what Paul says is the distinction that matters is the distinction of being in union with Christ. Then all those that are in union with Christ are in union with each other. And the challenge is to work it out. How do we live this out together as a family? What Paul is saying, in other words, is that it doesn't matter if you're a Ph.D. or a GED. It doesn't matter if you graduated magna cum laude or thank you laude, okay? It doesn't matter if you're in the boardroom or the courtroom. It doesn't matter if you clap on the one and three or on the two and four. It doesn't matter if you're on Wall Street or Main Street. It doesn't matter if you work in the White House or Waffle House. Everyone finds their new identity in union with Christ, and that is the distinction that overcomes all of the others. Whether they're political, sociological, or otherwise, this is our common center. You notice that he says Christ is in all, which is to say that he is present with the poorest saint. He is imminent with the immigrant. He dwells with the despairing saint. He makes his home with the homeless saint. He shares his address with the oppressed saint. He is a roommate for the inmate. He is the habitat for the new humanity. Here, there is not those common lines of distinction and difference that alienate. You know what he's after? Yeah, and I'm going to say this. This is important for you all to hear. Everybody wants to talk about diversity, 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 okay? And much of it is window dressing diversity. It's, it's virtue signaling. There's a difference between possessing virtue and signaling virtue that you do not possess, okay? Everyone's after diversity, but I want you to see in the scripture that Paul's not just after any old diversity. It's what you could call doxological diversity. Doxology, it just comes from the Greek word doxo, which means glory, it's about glorifying the Lord. Why do we seek to love people across lines of difference? Because it brings glory to God. And at the end of the story, we see that this is what God wants after all. It's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered around the throne in worship to the Lord. Every tribe, tongue, and nation feasting at the table of the Lord. That's what we're headed toward. And Paul wants us to begin to live into it now. He says to these folks in Colossae that when they look at one another, they must... They must see a new kind of value and a new kind of dignity and worth. Why? Because Christ lives there. Christ lives there. If you look at the poor and devalue them, what Paul is telling us is you're really devaluing Christ. If you look at the afflicted and ignore them, you're really ignoring Christ. If you look at the ignorant with spite and malice, you get the point. Paul calls us to be this beautiful, life-giving, loving community but to become this, we must 
change clothes. And if we're honest, we know that we're often found wearing the tattered rags of self-righteousness and pride, aren't we? We're often found clothed in the stained garments of malice and anger. But in light of the new age that has dawned in the resurrection, these styles are quite literally outdated. They are not coming back like retro, like bell bottoms came back in back in the day, right? They're not coming back. But the thing that this leaves us with, when you use this imagery, it leaves us with a question, and that question is this. How do I actually get out of the old clothes and get the new clothes on? And I got this amazing illustration when, when uh, it was years ago, when the kids were little. Elijah was a little guy. And uh, I told him to go upstairs. I said, hey, fat man, go upstairs and get ready for bed. And, you know, we'll, we'll get you, you know, set up and situated for bed. So he goes upstairs, and he's up there for a while. And all of a sudden, I hear, I'm like, what is that boy doing? And I go upstairs, and I walk in, and my man's pants are down around his ankles. And he's like tied up in his shirt like this. And he goes, Dad, I'm stuck. <laughs> and that image is how we often feel when it comes to getting out of the old clothes. We feel stuck. I can't get out. I can't get out. I just, I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated with those people. I just can't help but be a selfish sum of my gun, right? Like, it's hard to get out of those old clothes. So the question is, how do we get out? That brings us to our next point. We have to take a look at our unity. How do I change? It's in this next point. Our unity. Here's the deal. We are unified in our common failure to meet the dress code, aren't we? We all drop the ball. There is none righteous. No, not one, Paul says. We all are jacked up. Toe up from the flow up. However you want to put it, right? We all got issues. And we're unified in that. But more importantly, we are unified in our dependence on a shared Savior who loves us and changes us. But how does that work? How do we live up into this calling? How do we get the new clothes on and old clothes off? How are we to put on this moral and ethical beauty? The answer, y'all, is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's been said before that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. It's the everything. How do we change? It's the gospel. Every passage of scripture, every story in the text, every character, every institution is whispering his name. It's leading you to Jesus. Everything is going like this to Jesus. You go through every passage of scripture. Every, everything is leading us to Jesus. And it's no different in this text. Would you look at this text real quick with me? And I want you to see... Beginning with verse 12, it says, put on then as God's chosen holy ones. Here's where you should see the gospel, okay? This is actually a description of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at the text again and see that Jesus put on as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He bore with us. And though he had every reason to complain against us for our many failures and sins, he forgave us. And above all these, Jesus put on love. Do you see it? That's the good news that rescued us. This is the gospel and our hope for change. Because here's the deal. If our hearts are going to become compassionate, 
it will come in our wonder at Christ's compassionate heart toward us. If we are to put on kindness, it will come in our astonishment at his kindness toward us. You remember the life and ministry of Jesus? Jesus touched the untouchable, and he loved the unlovable, and he forgave the unforgivable, and he welcomed the undesirable. And to this very day, he saves those who are otherwise unsavable just by his loving kindness. If we are to put on humility, y'all, it will come in our communion with the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross so that he could bring us home. It's that humility that gave us life. And it's that humility that actually enlists our own hearts to want to be humble like that. You see, it's the gospel. If we are to put on meekness, it will come from learning from the meek and lowly Jesus. How could we ever become patient with anyone else in our lives unless we understood the extraordinary patience of God toward us? You know, I've said this before, but it bears repeating that the Bible should only be four chapters. After Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and decided to try and live life apart from God, Genesis chapter 4 should have said, then God blew everybody up and lived happily ever after the end. Because God did not create us because he needed us. God did not create us because he was lonely. God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing in perfect harmony and unity. God created us to share in his love, to participate in the joy of this world. It should only be four chapters long, but the fact that we have a story that continues all the way to new heaven and new earth shows you the extraordinary patience of God. And think about what that means when you're tapping your foot, waiting for your spouse to come out to the car because you're running late for church. We are waiting on the kids and they're messing around and they're supposed to be downstairs already because y'all got to go to soccer practice or school. S simple things like that. Remember the long standing patience of God toward you. That's what will grow your patience. And how could we bear with one another unless we have the blessed assurance that Christ knows us and yet still bears with us in our waywardness and selfishness? The fact of the matter is that Christ has had and continues to have every reason to complain against us. You see that? But instead of complaining against us, he intercedes for us. He speaks on our behalf to the Father. That's beautiful. And that's what changes us. We can forgive because he has forgiven us according to the riches of his grace. And above all, the chief grace of love to which he called us is the very grace that he has poured out in us and on us in all abundance. Organizations, institutions, and nonprofits and governments can throw all the money and programs that they want at our social issues, and it might have some effect. But the deepest need that all people have is for this Savior and this kind of loving community. The biggest problem for Christians is that we want to see the kind of healing and flourishing that Jesus brought without showing the kind of love that Jesus showed. Christ walked this earth with the peace of God in his heart. And look at the cost that he was willing to pay to secure our peace. Shall we now be passive and indifferent when it comes to pursuing the peace of our community and our neighborhoods? Nah. You see it in the gospel. Christ throws open the closet of grace 
so that we can put on his glorious hand-me-downs. You see this? Jesus wore this, this wardrobe first for our redemption. And now he calls us to put it on in response, in worshipful response for his gospel and his grace. This, this closet of grace is available to us. I'll put it to you like this. I'm closing now. Um, years ago, at Grace Mosaic, the ladies of Grace Mosaic used to do a clothing swap. And it was just... It was this situation where the ladies would get to a point where they would look at the clothes they were wearing and say, I'm tired of wearing this. Let me go make an exchange. And everyone would come, and you would bring your old clothes, get rid of them, and you would get new clothes for free. What Paul is telling us in this text is that there is a clothing exchange available in Jesus Christ, in the gospel you can put off the old moral vices and put on the new virtues in union with Christ. It's a new moral vision. And this is what binds the resurrection community together. So let me give you two applications off this. What do you walk away with when you leave here? How does this take shape? What should you do with this? First thing I want you to understand and remember is not to get it backward. You don't put on these clothes to gain acceptance with Jesus. It's because you already have acceptance through faith alone that you then are enabled to put on the new clothing. Don't get it backward. It's the difference between life and death. It's not about performing for him. It's about receiving freely by faith, okay, and then living in light of that faith. That's the first thing. The second thing is think about your life and just ask yourself a question. What, do, what practices do I need to put off? And what practices do I need to put on, take up? Just make it very practical. What are some small things? And remember the wisdom from that book, the New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. The author talks about the aggregation of marginal gains. And what he means by that is just break your life into its constituent parts. And just try to aim for 1% improvement in each of those parts over time. And over time, you will see significant change. It's very accessible. You don't have to be heroic. Just just grow in the, the grace and knowledge of the Lord and, and seek to live in light of that love. Second thing, third thing I will say is, again, I say this all the time, but it bears repeating. What's more important than your to-do list is who you're becoming. The most important question you must ask and answer every day is not, what do I have to do today? It's who must I become today? Because I am so loved by God. That's a different way of living. Because it really puts your to-do list in perspective. There are times where a healthy person will need to not get all the things on the to-do list done. Getting the to-do list done is actually an expression of dysfunction for some people in some cases. But if you're focused on who you're becoming, who must I become because Jesus loves me? I must become what Paul has laid out here in terms of the new clothes. This is who I must become. This is what God is after in my life for my joy and his glory. So let's take these things, put off the old clothes, put on the new clothes so that we can be a community that shows off the life of the resurrection to our neighbors so that they may perchance want to get a taste of what that's about. Amen. Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.